As we begin to look at chapter 8 of Matthew's Gospel, we, we kind of need to assume a certain tone. Um, if we kind of set the context uh, back up, Jesus has just sat on the mountaintop and He's doled out the law of God. He has done so in a way that none of the religious teachers of Israel had ever done. Uh, he spoke with power and He spoke with authority. Uh, And we saw in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, that the people were astounded by that. They were astounded by the difference between Jesus' teaching and that of their scribes. Uh, Not only did the scribes of the day merely, uh, as we said, recite what other teachers had said, but they also taught the law on sort of a curve, if you will. Uh, What I mean is that the religious rulers of Israel taught that righteousness and salvation uh, could be achieved by one's keeping of the law. In fact, it had to be achieved by one's keeping of the law. But at the same time, they also knew that no one could keep the whole law. Therefore, all throughout the Gospels, we see that, you know, they tried to establish some laws as being what we would call weightier, while other commands were seen as lesser. Uh, Because they knew that they couldn't keep every single detail of the law. They couldn't keep every single little facet of the law. They set about, all throughout the Gospels, uh, we see that they set about trying to weight the weightier parts of the law and the lesser parts of the law, believing that if they kept the weightier parts of the law, they could neglect the lesser parts of the law, and still in the end, God's balance of judgment would tip in their favor. It's almost like you're on a point system. If this law is worth five points, this law is only only worth one. Keep this one, you don't have to keep this one, you still end up to the good. That's kind of the way they, they saw their religious pursuits. And they thought that by living that way and seeing things that way, um, they could save themselves. And Jesus just shatters this heresy by teaching that the law had always been a matter of the heart and not simply of external behaviors. He also destroys the hopes of those who had bought into such a system by definitively proclaiming in Matthew 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And again, these were, even the religious rulers of the day knew they could not be totally perfect. So when Jesus, God the Son, teaching in authority, stands on the mountaintop or sits on the mountaintop and declares, you must be perfect to the same degree that your heavenly Father is perfect, He had to, in the minds of these Israelites that were listening, take them back to the scene that we see in Exodus 19. As Israel stood around Mount Sinai there, we read in verse 16, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. See, it was here that God gave the law of Israel through Moses, and the people could not approach Mount Sinai. 
They saw His holiness, they saw His power, and they knew that if they even touched the mountain, they would die. And as Jesus taught the true requirements of the law of God, those listening, I'm sure, must have felt the same as the people did at Mount Sinai. At the revelation of the holiness of God, His righteous requirement of perfection, and their inability to meet God's standard, I'm sure they must have trembled in their hearts. They must have thought, well, if I can't, I've got to earn salvation, but to do that, I've got to be perfect like God is perfect. There's no way I can approach God now. There's no way that I can touch the mountain, so to speak. Uh, the only thing left for me is death and destruction. Many would have felt as though they were completely cut off from God. And based on the on merit, they would be. But at that moment, as the people are faced with the truth that they cannot hope to ascend to God by their own worth or righteousness, when the religious rug has been snatched out from under them and they feel like they have no access to God whatsoever, the gate is closed, they are totally cut off, we see in chapter 8, verse 1, Matthew writes, When he came down from the mountain, this is symbolic I believe, of God's decision to save mankind. In John 3.13, Jesus tells us that no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. When we could not hope to approach God, when you couldn't hope to approach God because your sin was so great and your ability to keep God's commandments so small and so feeble, God descended to meet us. When we were cut off from God by our sin and we had no way of approaching God for fear of judgment and wrath, the Bible says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The God whom we could not approach put on flesh and He came to become one with His people. We didn't ascend to Him. He condescended to be with us. And we also see in verse 1 of chapter 8 that as Jesus came down from the mountain, it says great crowds followed him. You know, all throughout the Bible, God has always demonstrated his power to his people as well as to other nations by way of great miracles, has he not? If you look back in Exodus, you look back throughout the Old Testament, especially with the nation of Israel, so many times uh, he, he, he performed the ten plagues in Egypt to deliver his people. He parted the Red Sea, he sent down manna from heaven, and the, the, the food that he sent down from heaven was so good, they didn't have a name for it, so they named it, what is it? That's what manna means. I can only imagine eating something so good that you don't know what to call it. It's just, what is this? And that's what it's called. I'll take a fry bucket of fried, what is this? Because frying makes everything better. I don't know if you can make that better, but it's worth a try. God has always proved that he was God through these great miracles. He's always proved that he was active in the lives of his people by great miracles all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the history of Israel. And the prophet Malachi also writes of the future coming shepherd of Israel, saying, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. So the prophet is speaking for God here, letting us know you know, years before Jesus would be born, 
that a shepherd of Israel was coming. And when he was going to come, God again would through him perform marvelous things in the same way as he did when he had brought the nation out of the land of Egypt. So Jesus is going to begin performing miracles that will attest to his being the Messiah. And God has ensured here, right after he gives his definitive teaching on the law, he's come down the mountain and God has ensured that there would be a crowd of witnesses to see these miracles and testify to these great works and testify to who Christ must really be. It just so happens that immediately such an opportunity materializes. We see in verse 2, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, to Matthew's Jewish readers, this situation carried a much different context than it probably will for most of us. Uh, leprosy is, of course, an ancient skin disease that can take many different forms. It can be from the, ex- the minor extreme of uh, just having a, a skin irritation where your skin turns white or maybe looks like you have um, poison ivy or something like that. Or it can go to the other extreme to which uh, your body parts start to harden and your appendages start to rot and fall off. Um, God had given commandments to Moses concerning this disease In Leviticus 13, we read, starting in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priests. And the priest shall examine the diseased area of the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. So there was no hiding leprosy in the nation of Israel. There was no hiding leprosy here in this context. And the lepers were publicly declared unclean by the priest. This wasn't a quiet thing. This was something everybody knew about because uh, one facet of this law was the well-being of the community. They were declared unclean for one reason, so that leprosy would not spread rampantly throughout the people and society would be saved uh, from the disease. Not only that, but this condition had an obvious effect on every part of a person's life. We see in Leviticus 13.46, it says of the leper, He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So this disease separated a person from the rest of the nation. A leper was isolated in regard to both the social and the religious aspects of life. A leper, because he was unclean, obviously could not approach the temple. He couldn't enter in to worship God in the way prescribed by the law. Also, a leper's daily actions were dictated by his disease. In verse 45... Uh, We see the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And throughout uh, Jewish history or throughout the known world in the first century AD, we see there's many rituals throughout different communities where uh, if someone was to get within a certain distance, so many feet, so to speak, from a, a leper, the leper had the responsibility of declaring that they were unclean so the, 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 the healthy person didn't come too close and risk contracting the disease. And along with these factors, 
We cannot forget that a leper's very physical appearance made him stand out. In the most extreme cases, like we said, these people would have limbs or minor appendages that would be missing. They, they would obviously be under the effects of this horrible disease. And to add to all of this, the Jews specifically associated leprosy with sin. Um, this disease served as kind of a scarlet letter, if you will, throughout the nation of Israel. And there's an Old Testament precedent for this. There's several examples throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Miriam, Moses' sister, uh, was struck with leprosy because she spoke out against Moses. Uh, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, was struck with Naaman's leprosy because he had, not, he had uh, lied to Naaman out of his own greed. He had lied to Naaman, uh, therefore defaming Elisha. Uh, and he also lied to Elisha. King Uzziah was struck with the disease when he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense that he uh, did not have the, the, the responsibility or the right to offer. And then when the priests... Uh, rebuked him for it, uh, we get the idea he was about to beat them with a censer that was in his hand, and, uh, and leprosy appeared on his head. And lastly, King David declared a curse of leprosy over Joab and his entire family for the killing of Abner. So, biblically, leprosy is actually a good metaphor for sin. Um, our sin makes us unclean before God. It cuts us off from the commonwealth of Israel as we see in the book of Ephesians. We are severed from the presence of God by it. Sin even mars our physical being. All sickness, all pain, even death is the consequence of sin. And also, our sin often marks us in the eyes of others, doesn't it? Once our sin has become known, uh, if, if we sin grievously and it becomes evident, uh, once we are outed, so to speak, we all know this, especially in a small community. Generally, people for a long time kind of view us in the light of what we've done, right? You probably know people from high school uh, that had done some pretty stupid things. And whenever you think of that person, you don't think, man, that person could write a good English paper. You think about the things that they did that they're notorious for, right? Right? And that's kind of what sin does to us. We are known as being unclean by our sin oftentimes. And this man that we read about here in Matthew's Gospel came to Jesus and he wasn't someone who might have been a leper. Matthew points out clearly that he was a leper. Matthew being a Jew, pointing out clearly that he was a leper, uh, means that we can assign to him the context that we just spoke about concerning this disease. He had been to the priest. He had been declared unclean. He was living outside the camp, so to speak, or outside uh, the community, outside the city. He was living in desolate places where only lepers would live. He was untouchable. Uh, he looked disheveled. He looked erect. And most assuredly, everybody there who saw him would have seen him and said to themselves, this man must surely be a great sinner because he's been struck with leprosy. And as this man came to Jesus, we see three things about his thought process. First, he knew that he needed to be cleansed. He said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, one thing I want to point out is this. This was more than just a cry to be made legally clean on the part of this leper. Um, this man had been declared unclean not just because of the way he looked. He'd been declared unclean because of a real physical issue. 
Something that biblically was deeper than skin level. If you look at how the priests in Leviticus 13 were supposed to, uh, were supposed to diagnose leprosy, uh, they would say when you look at a blemish on the skin, if the hair is turned white or if the disease seems to be deeper than the skin, then it is a leprous disease. This man knew this was not just an external thing. He knew he had a real issue down deep in his body that needed to be cured. I like the way the Amplified Version says it. I think the Amplified Version says it probably more clearly. It reads, Lord, if you are willing, you are able to cleanse me by curing me. This man wasn't just asking to be legally cleansed. He was asking to be cured. He knew that fixing the external effects of his disease was not enough. He knew he needed to be totally cured of the root cause of his problem. Secondly, this man believed that Jesus had the authority and power to heal him. The literal translation of the term used here tells us that this man bowed down to worship Jesus as a dog licks the hand of his master. He didn't doubt Jesus' authority. But thirdly, we do see that this man was not sure that Jesus was willing to cure him. He knew he had the power. He just wasn't sure that he was willing to touch him, that he was willing to heal him, that he was willing to reach out and have anything to do with him. There might be reasons for that. I mean, imagine if this man had been living quite some time as a leper, how often had he been rejected? How often had he been rejected by the religious authorities? The ones who made their phylacteries long and made long prayers on the street corner so that others would notice them and worship them. I assume that when they walked by a leper, their, their character did not automatically change. And they became very compassionate and very, uh, very consumed with thoughts about the well-being of others whom they thought to be beneath them. Because surely this person is a leper, so surely this person is a great sinner unlike me. What most of the Pharisees and scribes would have had going on in their mind. This man had been rejected over and over and over. And also, it seems that he knew that his problem may not just be the external effects. It was something deeper than what meets the eye. And he comes to Jesus knowing that this great man who has just taught the law, and that he might have heard about before this, we don't know, apparently has the authority to heal him. And he does something that was almost unheard of. He runs up to him and kneels down before him. But he's not sure that Jesus is going to heal him. And we see in verse 3, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. You know, thankfully God doesn't require that we come to him in perfect faith. That man had been granted the faith to believe Jesus was able to cure him. And even though he wasn't totally convinced in Jesus' willingness, his faith was still enough. Jesus reached out and touched this man. Mark's account describes Jesus' reaction to the leper uh, and his request saying, Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Because of his great compassion for fallen, broken sinners, we can trust that God is ready to accept those of little faith if that faith is genuine. It's a great thing to know that the God that we have to run to and the God that we so often run to, he doesn't expect fallen, broken sinners who in the beginning were dead in their transgressions and sins. He doesn't expect us to have ultimate faith or he doesn't expect us to have flawless faith or perfect faith. 
He expects us to have the faith that He grants. And that faith is genuine. And He moves upon that faith that He has planted in the hearts of people who desperately need Him. Even if that faith is small. Even if that faith is the size of a mustard seed. Jesus was also willing to cure this man, not just because of his faith, but because he would perform such miracles to prove that he was the Messiah, and particularly for the Jews, that he was greater than even Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says to Israel in verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. In verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever does not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Moses lets the people know there will be a prophet like himself that comes up from among the people of Israel that would speak for God, that would have the very words of God in his mouth, not on tablets of stone, but in his very mouth. And that the people had to listen to this one whom God would send or else they must reckon with this great and mighty God who had sent him. In Exodus 4, it's interesting that we see that even Moses was susceptible to leprosy. Uh, in verses 6 and 7, it says at the burning bush when Moses was asking God, you know, how do I tell the people that you've sent me? Who do, how do I tell them, you know, that, how do they know that you sent me? God says this, again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back into your cloak or inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was stored like the rest of his flesh. Now, God gave this sign to Moses as a proof to Israel that he had been sent to speak for God to deliver them from Egypt. However, Moses did not heal himself of leprosy, did he? No. Neither did he heal Miriam of her leprosy. In fact, no one touched a leper and healed them in the Old Testament. I think it's an interesting fact. No one physically touched a leper and healed them in the Old Testament. God used men to pray for lepers or to direct the lepers to obedience like Elisha telling Naaman to go dip seven times in the Jordan. But in the end, God healed Moses' leprosy within his cloak. God healed Miriam as she lay suffering. And God healed Naaman as he dipped in the Jordan. In the Old Testament, only God touched anyone to heal their leprosy. And then here in Matthew 8, Jesus, is stre Jesus stretches out his hand and touched a leper and healed him. So what does that prove? It's that Jesus is not only greater than Moses, it's that Jesus is God. He had done what only God had done in the Old Testament. And while no one else would even get near a leper, Jesus was not intimidated by this man's disease. Can you imagine being the people standing around? You've been taught, just like most of us as little kids, we were taught, don't play with snakes. How many of you in here, your parents ever said, if you see, when you're a little kid, if you see a snake, run? Anybody ever got told that? Okay, the rest of y'all got told, grab a stick and kill it? Okay. Uh, you're two. Grab that stick, Junior. You get it. That's right. That's because Junior told Joe that. It's a wonder Joe's alive. No, we were told you run from dangerous things, right? We were told if, uh, if uh, you know, don't touch the top of the stove because what might happen to you? 
You might burn yourself, right? We're taught as little children, our parents teach us to flee from harmful things. Everyone here had been taught from the time they were able to walk, I'm sure, as their mothers walked them to the marketplace or around about the cities. If you see a leper, you don't get near those people because they didn't want their children to get this horrible disease and be a leper one day. So these people had been had it had had it drilled in their mind you don't touch these people you don't even get near these people and Jesus reaches out and touches this person whom everybody knew to be a leper can you imagine the shock can you imagine how the minds of these people had been blown what is he doing he can teach the law of god like this and he doesn't even know don't touch a leper I can only imagine the thoughts that would have been going on. But Jesus wasn't intimidated by this man's disease. That's because he's not intimidated by the root cause of all disease. All illness is a result of sin. There was no sickness or death in the Garden of Eden until when? Until sin entered the Garden. However, because of man's sin, all of creation was turned over to corruption. Now, some sin perhaps can be traced back to uh, traced back as a consequence. Excuse me. Some sickness can be traced back as a consequence to our sin, perhaps. David said in Psalm 38, 8, he said, There is no health in my bones because of my sin. James 5, 16 tells us, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Paul writes to the Corinthians concerning those who partook of the Lord's Supper in an unholy manner, saying, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. However, all sickness is not the direct result of a person's particular sins as much as it is the consequence of mankind's general sinfulness. This is why even babies are born with birth defects and illnesses all around the world. It's as Isaiah said in Isaiah 24, starting in verse 5, it says, "...the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants." For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. But Jesus is not intimidated by your sin. That's why he came to earth in the first place. See, Romans 8, 3 tells us, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. See, Jesus came intentionally for a confrontation between himself and sin and its consequences. Uh, we see this in 1 John 3, 8. It tells us whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Satan had been sinning from the beginning. What's the works of Satan? Sin. What did Jesus come to do? Destroy the works of the devil. Destroy sin. He didn't come to avoid it. He didn't come to just pay a penalty for it. He came to call it out by name and destroy it. Because if he didn't, we'd have no hope of a creation one day in which there would be no sin and be no consequences of sin. Jesus was not intimidated by sickness because sickness is nothing compared to the enemy called death. Correct? Why are we, why are we worried when we get sick? Well, it's going to mean we're a little, you know, 
put out for a period of time. We're, we're, we're not comfortable. We feel a little pain. But ultimately, why are we worried about the really big illnesses, cancer, things like that? Because they might lead to what? Death. Exactly. So if Jesus is not intimidated by death, why would he be intimidated by this man's leprosy? He wouldn't be. Sickness is nothing compared to the enemy called death. And Jesus came to conquer death for his people. That's why he came. Like a billionaire who co-signs a loan for a homeless person. Jesus intentionally took ownership of our sin so that the bill collectors of death and wrath and judgment would have to come deal with him instead of us. What he did was he intentionally joined himself to our debt so that it belonged to him just as much as it belonged to us so that when judgment and wrath and death came to collect, they had no legal right to deal with us anymore. These bill collectors had to deal with Jesus. And when they came to deal with Jesus, they had not a chance. Jesus came in human flesh because what he was doing was he was intentionally forcing the issue. He was making it so that the confrontation between him and our sin and death had to happen. There had to be a head-to-head. There was no way one was going to dodge the other. He made it so there was no avenue around it. It was going to happen and that's why he came and that's why he wanted. That's why he, that's what he wanted and he wasn't intimidated by death. He knew that he would be victorious over death. He said so in John 10:18, speaking of his own life, he says, "No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. In 1 Corinthians 15:56 it says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. So because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law, both the obedience that we are required to offer and the curse that we are the curse that we are under and we must take, he condemned our sin, meaning he did away with it. And because he did away with the law, he did away with sin, which is the sting of death. So now death has no more sting. Death has lost all its power. Death has lost all its weaponry in the life of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. And because death has lost all power, death has no way of gaining victory over the one who is in Christ. Jesus was not intimidated by sin, but he conquered it. So then, of course, he's not intimidated by death. And if he was not intimidated by death, again, why would he ever be intimidated by mere sickness? These people standing around had their minds blown because he was not scared of the things they lived their whole lives being scared about. Think about this now. You've got to get this in context. We live in America. We live in a first world country. We're not so worried uh, whenever we get maybe a major cut. We're cooking supper and we gash our finger almost to the bone. Well, it hurts and we go to the doctor, but we don't think this might cost me my life because we've got great medicine and we're all an hour or so or less from a hospital, something like that. We don't live in places like Haiti or, you know, other places in Africa, places where you may be days from a doctor. And then when you get to the doctor, the idea of doctor there is much different than it is here. They may not even have antiseptic. These people live their life totally afraid of any what we would call minor disease because it may literally end up being a life-threatening disease. Jesus wasn't intimidated by the disease and it blew their mind, but they just didn't understand the one that was standing before him. They didn't understand why he had come. He'd not only come to 
make a confrontation between himself and the disease. He came to confront the one behind the disease, sin. And he knew he was going to win. Think of all the things that we're intimidated by. Like I said, we're scared of sickness. And you may say, well, I'm not scared of sickness. Okay, what if someone you love gets sick? What if you get that phone call that says someone that you love more than anybody else in the world now has some life-threatening disease? And the doctor says they may only have so many months to live. We fall apart, don't we? We have a tendency to fall apart. Those those of us in here that have little children, what would happen if we went to our next doctor's visit and all of a sudden we found out our child has some blood disease and they won't make it through the end of the year? We'd fall apart. We'd be crushed. Or what about, you know, as we get older, we fear becoming more feeble or we fear losing our mind. I've heard so many people say, you know, I'm okay with getting sick. I just don't ever want to lose my mind. I want to be able to know what's going on. And unfortunately, that's, we just don't get to call the shots on that. It happens. We fear these things. We fear prolonged physical suffering. Some of us don't fear death. We fear being in a car accident, Kyle, where we're like crippled for the rest of our life and we can't go around and do things for ourselves. We fear those things. And we fear death. However, Jesus has come, and he's not only unintimidated by these things, he's conquered all these things for us. He's conquered all these things for you. I want you to think just a minute about how great this king is that we talk about so much. The things that we live our lives in fear of, the things that could at any point in time come upon us and shatter our whole existence, he gives no more care for than dust in the wind because they could never conquer him And he has already conquered them on our behalf. Totally unintimidated. He's so not like us. God, who has declared the law from the mountaintop in thundering and lightning and smoke and fire, who who has justly pronounced a wrathful curse for disobedience to his commands, has put on human flesh and come down the mountain. He has met with us, lived among us. He has joined himself inseparably to his people. He completely fulfilled all obedience to the law for us. He took full ownership of your sin and mine, and He took the wrath that was owed us. He was crushed for even our iniquities. And now He calls you saying, Come to Me with all of your sin and all of your shame and all of your sickness and all of your pain, and come trusting not only that He's able to save you and make you whole, but also that He is willing And how do we know He's willing? Well, that's the whole reason He came in the first place, is it not? He came not to condemn the world, but that through Him we might live, we might have eternal life. Of course He's willing. He wouldn't rob Himself of everything that sets Him apart from us and come and live among us if He wasn't willing to save us. That would be foolish. And God's not a fool. So tonight I think we need to ask the question, where are we in this story? Where do we find ourselves in this account? You know, I think there's two primary roles that we can see ourselves playing in this story. The first one is obviously that of the leper, right? We're all lepers. I mean, some of us 
Maybe lepers who have never approached the master before so as to be made whole. Maybe in here or maybe listening um, over a podcast. Some of us may have been, maybe people who uh, are lepers who have never come to the master to be healed. If you honestly look at your life tonight and you see that the leprosy of sin has overtaken your life, if you see that you are broken and you are crippled and you're dying in your sins, then come to Jesus. Come knowing that you are sick with sin and that only He can cleanse you and so as to cure you. You're cut off from God, but trust that He will pity you and save you. He beckons to you tonight saying, Seek me while I may be found. Come to me. Draw near while you can so that I can show you compassion and abundantly pardon you. And for those of us that are in Christ, we need to come so that He might have pity on us still. You know, none of us have arrived at a place of perfect holiness yet. And I think that's one of the big struggles of the Christmas, of the Christmas life, of the Christian life. There's a lot of struggles of the Christmas life. Uh, I think there's a big, there's one of the big struggles of the Christian life, rather. It's that we aren't what we used to be, and the quote-unquote big sins that used to dominate our life before God broke us over our sin and changed our heart, they are not running roughshod over us anymore. We may have our foot on the neck of those things pretty well. They almost never pop up. And so now, because we spent most of our life just looking at those things and not noticing the other myriad of sin or sinful practices that are in our life, because those things glared so brightly, we so often fall into thinking, well, we're doing pretty good. We're doing pretty good. I'm not doing that and that and that that I used to do. I'm not thinking that way I used to do. You know, I, I do these good things now that I didn't do. God has definitely changed my life. And yes, He has. But that doesn't mean that we've arrived at some level of holiness or perfection where we should ever sit down and say, okay, I'm at a good coasting speed. We don't set the cruise control, so to speak. Um, Hebrews 10.14 tells us, For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, in one sense, that means that God is still setting apart and drawing near the people that Christ has paid for by His blood. In another sense, that means that He has made us perfect by His blood, but we are still being made more holy every day, hopefully, or we should be. You know, I'll tell you about myself. One thing I know God convicted me of as I studied through this, I need to be cleansed all the time from my living as one who is unclean. What I mean by that is I spend so much time just staying outside the camp, so to speak. I mean, I need Jesus to touch the uncleanness of my life because I allow so many things to keep me living as though I was some kind of spiritual leper and living on the fringes of His grace and His presence, living on the fringes of joy, living on the fringes of the fullness of life that He's called me to. And I allow so many things to drive a wedge and push me to those outer limits uh, of, of, of where He really wants me to be instead of living right in the center of His will and right in the center of the life of God that He's called me to live in. I need Jesus to touch the uncleanness of my life. And I mean anything that causes me to be loose toward Him. Anything that causes me to have a, uh, any kind of flippant attitude toward Him at all. If my hobbies, my habits, my opinions, or my routines, or anything else causes me to live in a way other than intimately with Him, then I need Him to cure me. And if you've got anything in your life that causes you to live in any way other than intimately with Him, you need Him to cure you as well. We need Him to continually 
wash our feet, so to speak. We've been bathed. We need to be washed. We need to be made more holy. I don't want to live, like I said, on the fringes of His will or, the, or His presence when it comes to my attitude or my actions or my desires. I need Him to continually rein me back in and change me so that I live as one who has been declared clean and brought near to the temple of His presence. So we need to repent of those things. But the second role that we must see ourselves in if we are born again believers is that of the priests in verse 4. The Bible says in verse 4 of Matthew 8, And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now he said don't, don't tell anyone because it wasn't the time for him to have great publicity so they wouldn't be able to enter the cities and preach there as he, as he intended to. And if you read in uh, the other synoptic gospels, you'll see that Oftentimes he told people, don't tell anybody what I've done for you. And they would go and tell it anyway, disobeying the Lord who had just healed them. And oftentimes it drove Jesus not to the cities, drove him out into the wilderness places. He didn't, go, he didn't get to go to the people. The people had to come to him. But that's not our point tonight. He said, go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. As we said, according to the Levitical law, the priests were the ones who officially declared someone to be unclean or clean. As the body of Christ, we are to fill this role. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2 declares us to be a holy priesthood. Um, as, as such, we are to fulfill both the function of exposing sin and restoring the sinner. Um, Ephesians 5.11 commands believers saying, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We're to live lives that expose the lostness of the world around us. Here, here's one thing. You know, Jesus said this. He said, Woe unto you when all men think highly of you. You know, the problem with the Christian world in America, and the problem with the Christian world, to be honest with you here in Mize, the problem with probably us in this room is not enough people hate us. Kyle, we don't like being hated, do we? I don't either. It makes you feel bad, doesn't it? You can say the right thing and you can do it. You can quote a Bible verse to somebody and they get mad and start talking about your mama or something like that. And we go home feeling crushed. My mama just gaped her mouth like she would care. She's, she's gotten to that point in life. She's like, I don't care. We don't have enough enemies. We're supposed to live lives that just by our very actions, by our very lives, you know, it, it's okay if we make people uncomfortable. You know that? It's okay that when we, you know, we used to, we, we used to joke when I was a kid, you know, we talk about, you know, the preacher walks in and all of a sudden everybody kind of gets quiet and all that kind of stuff. What's wrong with that? If you're talking about something you shouldn't be talking about, at least somebody came in and stopped it. We act like that's a bad thing, don't we? We should be that way. You know, darkness scientifically runs from light. That's just kind of the way it's supposed to be. If we're being the light that we're supposed to be, our lives expose the lostness of the world around us, and we don't have to apologize for that. One reason that we have so many problems, and one reason we're in the pickles we're in right now, is because for so long we've been apologetic about being what we were recreated by the kindness and the grace of God to be, and that should have never happened. We should have just shone brighter and brighter. We are called as a royal priesthood to expose the sin around us. Also, we're declared, uh, we are to declare unclean those who would live unrepentant 
sinful lives within our ranks. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a viler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is those, it is not, is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So if someone is living in our midst and they're coming to church and they're claiming to be a believer and they're living an openly, unrepentantly sinful lifestyle, we should have no qualms about disciplining that person, declaring their sin to be sin and dealing with it in a biblical way. If we don't, we're not being the priest that we're called to be. However, when a leper became clean of his leprosy, the Old Testament priests who had initially declared him unclean were also instructed to take that person through the process of restoration and then declare him clean. Leviticus 14 says in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. So then if the leprosy was gone, the priest would walk the person through the ritualistic sacrifices and the cleansing ceremonies that God had prescribed. And after these had been completed, we read in verse 7, then he shall pronounce him clean. Amen. In the same way, when a sinner comes to Christ and repents of their sin, it doesn't matter how notorious of a sinner they have been, we are to embrace our new brother or our new sister. We are to pronounce them new in Christ and set about the task of discipling them, of restoring them in the life of Christ. And when a fallen brother or sister in Christ sees the error of their ways and repents, The Bible says you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You know, unfortunately, you know, there's been a lot of times that in a season perhaps of spiritual coldness or uh, or just youthful ignorance or whatever, born-again people can and do fall into sin. And sometimes it is very grievous. And sometimes it is very shameful. And when this happens, much like the leper... Their fall is often public. It seems like Satan makes that makes a point to make it public. And they may be treated by those around them as an outcast. We, however, are told that though a brother or sister has sinned grievously, when they repent, we are to both forgive them and we are to walk them through the process of restoration just like the Old Testament priests were to do. Paul again writes to the Corinthians concerning this, saying... So you should rather turn to forgive him and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That's the role that we are supposed to take. Amen? So tonight, you know, um, Ryan's going to come and he's going he's to play something for us. And, you know, if you need to go, you can go ahead and go. But one thing that we do want to start making available is... Uh, maybe a time of contemplation and a time of, we call it a time of decision 
You can call it a time of prayer. You can call it whatever you want to call it. But I will just kind of say this. I think one thing, I know one thing that affects me is, I'll, you know, if Brother Tony's preaching or Brother Kyle's preaching, a lot of times I'll hear the word and my heart will be stirred by it. And then as soon as we say amen, we kind of have a, cult, a church culture of just kind of saying, okay, it's time to get up and leave. And everybody starts talking and everybody starts doing whatever. And our minds completely leave the word that has just sunk in our hearts. And unfortunately, if you're like me, by the time you get home, you're too busy to go back and think about everything that just had been stirred in your heart. So let's not be so quick to abandon what God wants to do in our hearts. But we just want to give that time to God. Amen. I'm going to pray and then just pray as long as you want to. Father, I just want to thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word because we, can, we only know you through your word, Father God. And I want to thank you for your word that confronts us. God, I need to be confronted by your word so much. And I, I want to thank you, Father. Um, for letting me preach, Lord, I know that um, I know that I may not be very good at it sometimes, but Lord, I, just the, the 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 task of going through and studying, God, that's where you speak to my heart so many times. And I, just, you know, personally, selfishly, God, I, I need it, and I want to thank you for it, Father. Thank you for the gift of it. Thank you for uh, thank you for everything you put in our lives that causes us to to have to face the truth of your word. And tonight, I pray that you move on our hearts, Father God. Uh, I know that everybody that's here is here because you want us to be here. And I believe that you had something to say to all of us. And I just pray that you would speak to our hearts right now. Help us be open to you, Father. Help us tremble at your word. Help us repent where we need to repent, Father God. Help us, uh, help us see hope where we haven't seen hope, Father. And we lift up all these people that we've named and people that we have on our hearts that are sick and suffering. Lord, you are the great physician. And I know that you have a, a purpose in every sickness. And if it's to heal, Lord, heal. If it's to teach and discipline, teach and discipline. Father, whatever it is, we just ask that your will be done. Because, um, Father, you just know better than we do. And we trust you. So we turn it over to you. And we, 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 we trust you with these things. And we ask you to, to move on our hearts tonight like only you can, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.